The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, November 18th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Pete Buttigieg, you may have heard, is surging. Nothing like a surging Buttigieg. But he has no black support. How could this be? As Democratic activist Zerlina Maxwell tweeted, quote, I'm offended that some folks in the media are covering Mayor Pete like he can win when he's at zero with the base of the Democratic Party, black people. Your bias is showing, so please be aware and tuck it in. Buttigieg is at zero in South Carolina with black voters. Of course, Maxwell's preferred candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, are only at 8% and 6% with South Carolina Democrats who are black, which is to say two-thirds of South Carolina Democrats. There's no reason to act, by the way, that South Carolina is so much more important to a Democrat's chances than any other state. South Carolina has 63 delegates to award. They, like in all states, will be awarded proportionally. So while it's true that without the black vote, it will be hard, if not impossible, to win a state that's overwhelmingly black, there's no such thing as winning a state. It's all about delegates. That's not even my main point. My main point is you have heard over and over, like I have, the notion that you just can't win the Democratic primary without black voters. Such luminaries as Meghan McCain advanced this notion as recently as today on The View. Do I think Mayor Pete is going to be the Democratic nominee? Absolutely but didn't, not. didn't this guy in, um, in Louisiana... Because got, you can't become Republic- president with no black support All right, but across the, the country. It's ridiculous. I know a guy who won without too many black votes, but I think she means you can't get the Democratic nomination or maybe you can't beat Trump without the support of black people. Well, of course, it is true. Almost all African-Americans who vote in primaries vote Democratic, but it is plainly wrong that you can't become the Democratic nominee without the black vote. You literally can't become the Democratic nominee without the white vote, but that seems either obvious or oppressive to say. 55% of Democratic primary voters are white. Only 25% are black. There are literally twice as many white voters. But you don't hear anyone say, well, I don't know how they're going to do. They're not doing that well with the whites. It is true if you're not doing well with the whites. I can tell you some candidates who aren't doing well with the whites. Klobuchar, Bennett, Steyer, Booker, Castro, Marianne Williamson. Also, let's look at college-educated voters. According to the primary project at Brookings, in 2018, 62% of Democratic voters had a college diploma or more. Now, that number is going to decrease as primaries in years when there's a presidential election call out more people. But it is still true that there are more college-educated voters in the Democratic primary than there are black voters. Of course, there are a lot of college-educated black voters in the Democratic primary. But I believe the reason we keep hearing that you, and by you we mean Pete, can't win the Democratic primary without black support is not in the pursuit of an informed electorate. Oh, thanks for telling us that. It's more a means of shaming. Democrats generally want to be progressive, see themselves as progressive on racial issues. Therefore, they want to nominate a candidate who black people support. And black people right now clearly do not support Pete Buttigieg. So critics, or not-so-helpful pundits, keep asserting that it's impossible to get the nomination without black support. That is not true. I do think it's pretty implausible, but that doesn't mean I don't think Pete can win. He can win. Sorry, Zerlina, I'm wearing an untucked bias shirt, I guess. 
But what will happen is if he does win or starts winning and starts winning in states without much black support, he will get attention. He will get momentum. He will get donations. He will get stories written about him. He will become more salient to all voters, including black voters. He will get high profile endorsements. And what this will mean is that he will start getting some support in the black community. By the way, in South Carolina, some of those things happened to Bernie Sanders, who had decent enough early showings and he did okay. And therefore, he did better in the black community in South Carolina than what he was polling. He wound up winning, ready, 18% of the black vote in South Carolina. By the way, a lot of the people who are denigrating Pete as not having black support are big Bernie fans who really did not have big black support. What Pete has to do is he has to work on it. He has to try hard, and he needs to do a better job than he has been doing. Better, that is, than the defense on a purely statistical basis given by an occasional podcast host correcting a common assertion that has become quite overblown. On the show today, in the spiel, I'll get into it as two mayors go at it with the presidency at stake. Though, let's be honest, it's not really at stake. But first, Yancey Strickler was the founder and CEO of Kickstarter. Now, I've never kickstarted, or whatever the word is for when you give to a Kickstarter. Is that called kickstarting too? I don't know. But I learned this about the tech startup. Instead of cashing out for millions or maybe even billions of dollars, the Kickstarter founders organize themselves as a public benefit corporation. Kind of interesting. They have a real commitment to what Kickstarter is and has always been about, which is arts funding and fun, crazy projects along those lines. Strickler stepped down a couple years ago. Now he spends his time thinking about things and writing them in a book. This could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world with Yancey Strickler of Kickstarter. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Perhaps you know Yancey Strickler from the Clover Hollow, Virginia Stricklers. Maybe not. Maybe you knew him as a rock critic in the early aughts. Maybe you knew him as the co-founder of Kickstarter. Or maybe you knew him as a guy who wrote this essay that kind of grabbed everyone's attention about how we interact with social media in the world today. An analogy to the dark forest. Yancey Strickler is now out with a book, so maybe you'll know him for this. This could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Thanks for coming in, Yancey. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you invent Kickstarter essentially by talking to your favorite waiter in a diner in Williamsburg. Well, Perry <laughs> Chen invented, it was his idea, Perry's yeah. idea for Kickstarter. And we met yeah, not far from here in Williamsburg at a restaurant called Diner where he worked and I was a regular. And I also at the time, my day job was at a company called eMusic, which was the first digital music service. So that made me the most technical person I think Perry had encountered who also seemed to connect with the idea. And yeah, one night he told me, like, let me tell you about this idea he had had. And it was yes. the idea for Kickstarter, the idea for crowdfunding. Yes. And um, I didn't like it. You know, my first my first reaction was like, this sounds like American Idol. And uh-huh. is that really what we need? So it's too populist for you. Yeah, this was 2005. And so this is like Ruben Stuttered uh, era. <laughs> uh, and uh, but, you know, he responded by being like, well, but think about the niche things. Think about the person that has. You know, no one around them gets what they're doing. There's the internet where they find their tribe. Like, what about that person? You know, and that's the music and things that I like. And so I instantly felt, yeah, oh, of course. I would help David Lynch do anything. I would help, you know, so find many bands ear, do say. anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so it just became this exciting thing. You know, this is 2005, 2006. This is pre-internet. You know, this is after still was, sort of the okay, dregs of the crash. One, there was one bust, one internet bust, yeah. but then it was building up again. The rest of the economy was going really well because there was another housing bust to have, but that housing yeah. bust affected the internet. So you you incubate, you come up with this idea in 2005. Perry had it in 2001. We started yeah. working on it in 2005. And met Charles Adler in the next year in 2006. And I, I don't know. It, it felt like playing house a little bit. I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Being like startup tech thing was just not in my world at all. And my day job, you know, I was an editor. I was like editing pieces. I've always been a writer. But I was doing like corporate meetings. I say corporate with quote marks. But and I was good at it, and I, it made me feel guilty. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like a sellout that I was good at meetings because I'm like, no, I'm, I've got to be the writer. You know, I've got to be the guy who, like, sticks his nose out, sticks his yeah. tongue out at all this. Yeah. But instead, I found that actually, like, that stuff was interesting and thinking about how to not just express ideas on a page, but how do you express ideas collectively, you know, and all these other forms was, like, super interesting. Right. And there's a value to it. And there's a value to capitalism done well, I think, and with intentionality and all the bento box ways that you talk about, which we'll get into. But it does seem to me that, so it takes a few years to, for this ragtag group of uh, waiter, journalist, and Adler was kind of a techie. He's a designer. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes a few years to get the funding, and those years coincide with the worst years for the economy. As you're maybe maturing and ready to go, boom, September 07, November 07, crash, 2008, the economy in the doldrums. When does Kickstarter become a thing that I heard about? It launched in April 09. The first New York Times story was August 09. Yeah. And so, yeah, it launched right. I mean, I think April 09 was literally the lowest point of the of the market. At the time, it must have been so hard to get funding, but maybe it had this effect of, you know, sanitizing the landscape from the ideas that 
weren't so good that they absolutely had to poke through. Yeah. Uh, Carlotta Perez, amazing economist who wrote about capital markets and technical revolutions, talks about how it's at moments of crashes that all the easy money, Mm -hmm. like all the easy investments go away. And so then people are forced to make investments in things that are riskier because there's just nowhere else to put the money. And so this is how crashes inevitably seem to create whatever the next wave will be. So I think that there is some way that we benefited of just like what else was really happening there. And the fact that we were launching at that moment was like, so non-strategic. It was just, we had been trying and failing to do this for so long. And now here it was, it was finally there. And again, for the projects that were going on Kickstarter, like the first projects were people making zines and home records. And none of those people were impacted by, yeah. like Lehman Brothers going belly up wasn't affecting their ability to publish their zine. But yeah, we, we just entered this space where n- no one was really thinking about this need of small-scale art projects that have no hope of scale or profit. And when those were the people kickstarting in the beginning, I'm going to use the verb if sure, you, you object. Yeah. I'm cringing every time, but it's Is fine. Is it true? No, 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 okay. it's fine. And it was zines or it was, you know, my band would like to sell out a venue, but we want to get proof of concept before we book it. Like, was that thrilling to you or yeah. was that too small time for you? Oh my, that's all I ever wanted. That's still all I wanted to be. <laughs> that's still all I wanted to be. You know, yeah. when we launched... When we launched, my my internal success metric was one project to be funded in the first month Mm -hmm. because I just thought, well, if at least something happens as a result of all this, like you got to feel pretty good. Like one thing. That stupid artist space was sold out. She poured jelly on herself and 80 people got to see it. (laughs) God bless. Yeah. So there were, but there were like two or three in the first week. What were those? Do you remember? uh, The very first one was a guy called Drawing for Dollars. He said, if you give me five bucks, I'll draw you a picture or something. Got $35. But what was amazing is that we didn't know him, nor did we know any of his three backers. And like it worked. (laughs) So it was... That was a real, like, I remember that. I will forever remember that moment. If you kept those drawings, how much would they be worth now? Uh, probably. It's like $7. Like yeah, $7. <laughs> $7. That's not even, that's less than inflation. Damn. So tell me about what must have been the internal deliberations about defining what was able to be kickstarted and what wasn't because artistic endeavors, sure, and then a lot of inventions and technical endeavors that seems to go along. So you have anything that could be the subject of a TED Talk, I guess that could (laughs) be. Right, right, right. But what else? There must have been tension. Well, the very, always tension. I mean, I think there still is. There there always will be. The very first rule Perry and I came up with was just no bummers. Mm -hmm. Just like didn't want it to be depressing. Wanted it to be about people making things. Didn't want people to use guilt. Didn't want to say I'm so broke and I need this. Like early on, you define the spirit of something. So it's like, let's make this be about positivity, making things, you know, that kind of attitude. That was the initial filter. To create a project, people had to get an invite from someone or they wrote in. And when they wrote in, they talked to me. Mm-hmm. And so I just emailed with everybody. Um, yeah. for Did the, you give yourself a special title based no, on that part? No, no, That would no. be a good title to invent also. But, but I had like the first nine months until the end of 2009, every single project talked to me. Mm-hmm. And so... In those conversations, I'm like feeling out, is this a right project or not? And then- So all those conversations were the ones that were on the cusp of perhaps it would count and perhaps it would Yeah, you would ask questions. Can you give me a sense of why you're doing this? Give me some hard calls. Give me one that you made either yes, you're a Kickstarter or no, that you still wonder if that was the right call. One that ended up having a big impact on the future of the company came the next year, 2010, and it was two guys who have a company called Studio Neat. They're based here in Brooklyn, and they had made something called the Glyph, which was an iPhone 4 tripod stand. Right. And this was the first product 
that had ever come to Kickstarter. We'd never seen someone, like their video felt like an ad. I mean, it was, it was clever, yeah. but like they were making a product. Right. And it's a piece of rubber. It's a piece of rubber. It's a piece of rubber. Yeah. So like piece of rubber is not that inherently artistic. Yes. I mean, I guess it could be, but a piece of rubber doesn't make the heart sing and you think of the better angels of your nature. It's just that the piece of rubber can be applied to an a device that's and, owned by millions of people. Yeah, yeah. And, but can also help you make movies, let's say. Yeah, and so these guys, Dan and Tom, wrote in with this project. I forget who first got the email, but it came to me, and we started talking about what do we do. Mm-hmm. And I think I first said no. And, you know, sorry, like we're not, we're a creative site, whatever. And they wrote this email back. I'll always remember it, that's like, totally get where you're coming from, but, you know, we are creative people. We don't play guitar. We don't make movies, but we work with 3D modeling. We work with injection molding and like, and we are absolutely creative people trying to do this in a creative way. So we agree with you, but we also think we are you. Yes. And, and when I read that, I was like, yeah, I buy that. Yes. And, and why should I let my own biases of like my own taste dictate this? Right. That was the exact right <laughs> The argument. only way they could have gotten, yeah. Yeah, because you are a person, as people would get from reading the book, and maybe if they know a little bit about you, who is always questioning himself yeah. and also doesn't want to be seen as closed-minded and isn't closed-minded and does all these experiments, some of which I think are maybe a little insane, <laughs> but, but embraces is so active and intentional about not being closed-minded yeah. that argument will work perfectly oh, on it's you. Li- it's and it like was a they, good argument, I think, for they, the future they, of the site. They were Luke flying into the Death Star. Mm-hmm. They got it just right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was like, yeah, I believe in this. And I, you know, I think those guys are great. They've done a dozen projects since. But that project went up, and I remember it was on Daring Fireball. Daring Fireball posted it that day, the big Mac site that John Gruber runs. And that project raised, I think it was like 50 grand in a day. And yep. there had never been anything like that before. And I think by the end, it raised maybe 150 grand. And we've had mixed feelings about it, especially as there just started to be lots of imitators coming through. And then suddenly... Crowdfunding sites, if you oh, No, not, not oh. crowdfunding. Other, other like, imitators other iPhone of, accessories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And right. so I think... They turn into that I think side. we ended up, like, even having a rule briefly that, like, banned iPhone accessories, something like that. We had a lot of these kinds of conversations. And you're doing, like, this whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. How do you let in... The Eve Bahar type people, the people who are like they are an artist who work. Right. This is the this is the form they work in, and how do you keep out schlock? Isn't scale then an enemy of that experiment? Yeah, because as much as some of the huge society dominating corporations of today want to analogize it to their beginning days, oh, it's not so different when we were in the dorm room or whatever. It is different if you or someone who you don't talk to every day is not the one making the decisions. Mm. And so what did you do to guard against that? Did you well, build I mean, we, we, well, this is when we started to formalize more rules. Right. Like I came to realize that the terms of use and prohibited items list for every site. Like, there's a story behind every item on that list. Like, why did eBay ban flammable things? Because something weird happened at some point. We started becoming the same, just like this long list of, like, somewhat absurd kind of things that were banned and prohibited that were just, like, just trying to stop things that we felt were wrong. There was diminishing returns on that. We ended up sort of cleaning that up. You're always, like, revising the guidelines. But then really hit another level in 2012 when projects started raising the first project crossed a million dollars in funding, Double Fine Adventure by Tim Schafer. It's like a video game comeback. The perfect Kickstarter. This is like the David Lynch of video games making, yeah. you know, his, his grand return. And that just kicked off this wave. He made a million dollars in 24 hours. 
And then suddenly Kickstarter became like the people's lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. It's a place where a normal person with a good idea could seemingly become a millionaire overnight. Yeah. And everyone came wanting to launch a project and and we had to become more protective while also watching the site grow like crazy. And later that year, we launched this set of rules called Kickstarter is not a store that laid down a lot of even more draconian rules to try to limit how much money people can make on the platform. Because right. the way we thought about it was this much money coming in so quickly, like this maybe is exciting, but we don't think this is good for the long term. And also, and this is very important, and I know a lot of uh, people in the tech world are libertarians, but you know, without the government regulation that you can't make a profit as an investor, I think Kickstarter would have been warped and changed and probably destroyed. And we wouldn't have done that. You know, for us, like, the beauty of Kickstarter was that projects are being funded without any financial upside. It was just what was cool. Yeah. And because a world based on decisions on financial outcomes would just make a very limited spectrum of project possible. And In fact, it's exactly what the book is about is the antithesis of maximalizing profit. The only thing with worth is the thing with profit. Yeah. yeah. And so the irony of Kickstarter is that there's a giant scoreboard of money on every project page, but yet it's like has one of the strangest relationships to money, I, I think, anywhere, because that money is purely a it's a creative fuel. Like we're converting it into something yeah. else. We're converting money into albums and money into restaurants and whatever it is that people want to make. Yeah, but you know, the the governance, you know, we've always Kickstarter's always taken pride in being very active in the governance of the site. That gets you into all sorts of weird areas and it's extremely challenging and like every day you come up with 30 gray area choices where you're like, right. I don't know which way. And you're searching for principles. It's hard. It's very emotional, emotionally draining work because you're also dealing with a human being on the other side who wants in, mm -hmm. probably has a great story about why they want in. And but we also have to recognize that the decision you make about this is going to signal to the next 5,000 people what they think they should do. So I want to ask you about some of your, I guess we could call them colleagues or contemporaries who are also in disrupting tech industries. And it seems like, I mean, different people have different personalities, but there are at least a few famous ones who started as idealists, if not utopians. I mean, I would think, it seems to me that Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know, have you met him? Do you know him? I have met okay. him. Okay. Seems like a very nice person with nice values. He has the maybe similar values to you and your co-founders. Yet things have, if there are guardrails, they've gone off the rails. What do you think the difference is? Is it that he relied on the fact that he would have these abstract values and not write them down like you mm. did? Or was it more of, or possibly, that he has the point where... He has a structure that he controls the company. No one could ever take control of his. He owns all the voting stock. And in your book and in interviews, you talk about the value of not just literally with stock, but just the value of giving up control. Mm. What do you think has been the difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, if you can't be challenged, if you don't have that kind of tension of being forced to confront or put your values to the test, I think that it becomes harder to know what those things really are. I also think that, you know, when you become as successful as like Facebook has become, you there's just an instinct to be protectionist. Like the idea of losing anything begins, there's the loss aversion of like giving yeah. anything up that you've gotten that becomes, you know, like you're making decisions to protect something that three years ago you probably weren't even sure was a good idea. And I'll tell you something else, loss aversion, the thing I, I'll surmise, I'll put out there, the thing that he's trying to protect is not just what he has, but the idea of growth. 
So here's my question. Is there an argument, okay, he'll make his money, but there are so many people down the road or investors that he really would be screwing over that he really can't do that? I don't know. Probably. I mean, I, I used to have this thought like why why there's already in, there's already rich people already have so much money why do they need more yes but then i've come to realize that you know a wealthy person looks at their wealth as like it's pre the 10 percent they're going to make on it too so there's this constant need for it to keep growing and maximizing right. so now is never enough it's always what it might be so this is all in the book. So is the bento box. I'll just tease the bento box and tell people like an actual Japanese restaurant. The bento box is on the menu and you could check it out in Yancey Strickler's new book. This could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Yancey Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter. Thanks for coming in. That was great. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. It takes a big man to admit that he was wrong. Michael Bloomberg's five foot eight inch man. It took him a long, long time to admit that he was wrong on the policy known as stop and frisk. Longer than it took the Daily News to admit it was wrong, but they did. Longer than it took National Review to admit they were wrong, but they did. Longer than it took me, Mike Pesca, to admit I was wrong, but I did, and I was. We were just a bunch of commentators on the outside trying to advocate for policies which did the most good and caused the least harm. Mayor Michael Bloomberg, however, was mayor and therefore was the author and defender of the policies, so his opinion really counted a lot more than ours. It took Bloomberg a while. It took him until he was on the cusp of a presidential run to say these words. I got something important wrong. I got something important really wrong. I didn't understand that back then, the full impact that stops were having on the black and Latino communities. I was totally focused on saving lives, but as we know, good intentions aren't good enough. Not good enough, says current mayor Bill de Blasio. De Blasio was on CNN saying that crime has come down every year since he became mayor. So what we have here, is the current mayor and former presidential candidate weighing in and characterizing as inadequate the apology of the former mayor and current presidential candidate, or at least very close to presidential candidate. Let us, however, analyze de Blasio's statement. He says crime has come down every year. Well, not murder. The year before Bloomberg took over the mayorality, 649 New Yorkers were murdered. The year he left, it was 335. He pretty much cut it in half. Then murder did go down in de Blasio's first year on the job. And then it went up to above Bloomberg levels, then down to exactly Bloomberg levels. And in 2017 and 2018, it was under 300, but murders are up about 5% since the same point last year. Now, I don't think you can attribute maybe any of this, certainly not the vast majority of this, to stop and frisk either working or not working. But if you want to bolster your argument, you can't do it with the non-fact that all crime has gone down every year. de Blasio went on to say this. Uh, I would like to remind you also, you know who's been the biggest booster of stop and frisk in recent years? Donald Trump. And if Michael Bloomberg couldn't find it in his heart during his own mayorality to acknowledge the mistake, well, surely when Donald Trump started speaking up for stop and frisk, that would have been the time for Mike Bloomberg to come forward and say, wait a minute, I was wrong, and we've got years of evidence. My administration has certainly proven it was a mistaken policy. It was counterproductive because we've gotten so much safer since. 
This is a terrible argument. He's basically saying just because Donald Trump favors a policy, that means the policy is wrong. Well, Donald Trump favors not nuking North Korea so far. He hasn't gotten us off the system of weights and measures that standardizes what an ounce is or what a minute is. And, you know, Mayor de Blasio was in favor of pulling out of the TPP. I thought it was bad policy. I thought we should have stayed in. But Trump agreed with Mayor de Blasio. We're out of the TPP. I guess by de Blasio's logic, I win the argument, right? Because Trump agreed with de Blasio. By the way, that's also by my logic. I win the argument, too. It works a lot that way. Anyway, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Current Mayor, I wonder, are you like eight or nine years old? If Donald Trump says it's good, it must be bad. What is that? Now, if you listen to what he was saying really closely, he was making a slightly more subtle point, which was equally wrong. He was saying, wouldn't the time to announce that stop and frisk was wrong, wouldn't that have been when Trump started advocating for it? No, that wouldn't have been a good time. It would have 100% been dismissed as, oh, so there is a policy that you championed, that you defended, that you carried out, and as soon as the guy who you hate says it's a good policy, that's when you come out against it. Insights like this show why Bill de Blasio isn't maybe the best political strategist. Also, note how de Blasio says, and the city is safer. It's not. It's not horribly less safe. It's just not demonstrably more safe. In many ways, it's less safe. And if you look at where Bloomberg took the city from a place of relatively less safety to a place of relatively more safety, de Blasio's, you know, at best left it alone. Murder, as we've documented, has fluctuated. For four of the last five years of the Bloomberg administration, grand larceny was lower than for the first four years of the de Blasio administration. De Blasio bragging about fewer arrests, it doesn't do much for me. Not arresting people for serious crimes that they've actually committed, that's no societal good. Not arresting them for petty crimes, that's good. Mass incarcerations declining is also a good thing. But the state gets a lot, lot, lot more credit for that than the city. Let us see if Mayor de Blasio properly credits his gigantic rival, Andrew Cuomo, for that one. Now, here is why what you've just been listening to, which is essentially an argument between two people who are mayor of the city I live in, but will never be the president of the country you live in, why this is important and goes beyond these two guys. It's because so often people are against the policy, and then they add, and not only are the costs more than the benefits, but the policy only added to the problem. It's comforting, or at least it's cognitively reassuring, to think that this is often true. It's often asserted. It's not often true. You'll hear critics of mass incarceration say, and it didn't even affect the crime rate. You'll hear opponents of torture say, and torture never works. You'll hear critics of for-profit health care say, and the profit motive actually gives us worse care. You'll hear them say, the pharmaceutical industry gives us worse drugs because of the profit motive. And look, I'm for less mass incarceration. I'm for no torture. I'm for good drugs. I'm for not harassing communities of color through over-policing. But it's just not true to say the suite of policing policies that included stop and frisk did not have a measurable, demonstrable effect on crime. Now, if you want to say, and I think I do want to say this, that 
none of that matters because the costs were too high, then do so. That's an honest argument. But don't twist the facts and shade the truth to try to win the argument or more likely to cheer those who already agree with you that they're not really difficult choices, that they're not really policies with downsides, but also upsides. It's all upside or all downside. I think we do better when we're honest about costs and benefits. I think we think more clearly. We become less susceptible to dishonesty in other realms, and we become better crafters of policies in general. The standard dynamic is not, in fact, between costs and no costs, or benefits and no benefits. It is a cost-benefit analysis. In the case of stop and frisk, the evidence is clear. It's good that Bloomberg is admitting as much. It would have been better if he admitted it earlier. And it would be best if we could all admit that this is an issue that we should bring our full faculties of critical thinking to rather than silly arguments like Donald Trump is for it or your apology is not accepted because I was right first. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He wants to start a fund for truly diehard fans of the Reese Witherspoon character in Election. A flick martyr Kickstarter. Christina DeJosa, just producer, would like to fund a collective that trades eggs and hatchlings of baby birds. The Chick Barter Kickstarter. That has a chance to actually get funded, I would say. Me, the gist, I want to crowdfund a dinner treat that combines breaded processed seafood along with that food's most common condiment. I wish to kickstart a fish stick and tartar Kickstarter. Doesn't exist. Wish it did. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>